is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program and happy National Ag Day. Making rural news this afternoon, we can tell you that an Indian sandwood plantation near Matarenka has been sold for $9.3 million. Who's snapped up Stylo Station? You'll find out soon. And we'll be catching up with two mates from the Territory who have started their own beekeeping business. So our primary focus is pollination, so providing pollination needs to, for farmers on their crops. Uh, but we've also got a few exciting ventures in the works. Yeah, not only is it National Ag Day, but it's also Australian Pollinator Week, a perfect time to be talking bees on the Country Hour. A seriously big show today. I hope you can stick around. We're broadcasting across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online. And g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. First up today, let's talk water because the Northern Territory Government has just released a draft water allocation plan for the Georgina and Wiseau Basins. Now, this covers a huge part of the Northern Territory. We're talking just north of Daly Waters to south of Tennant Creek. We're talking about the Beedaloo, most of the Barkley and southern parts of the Sturt Plateau region. A seriously big area which has been allocated a lot of water. It is a draft plan, but let's learn more about it. Amy Dysart is from the Department of Environment and Water Security. What can you tell us about this plan, Amy? So, thanks, Matt. As you would remember, a couple of years ago, we had the scientific inquiry into hydraulic factoring in the Northern Territory, and it made a recommendation that the Territory Government should extend the water control district in this area and it should develop a water allocation plan and that's why we've gone about developing this plan. Because prior was there much groundwater being extracted from these basins? No so this area as you've said already is a very large area and there's a there's a low level of use compared to other um, aquifers in the territory so we are developing this plan early in the planning framework so it's quite different to what we've done in other parts of the territory because we've got the plan in place before that development has occurred. Okay so the draft plan is out and make sure you correct me if I'm wrong too Amy I've got here that the government believes more than 250,000 megalitres of water a year can be sustainably taken from these basins. Uh, that is a big number. How did you get to that conclusion? Yes, well, there's a, also, that's relative to the resource. It's a um, big number from a very, very big resource. So we have a um, good understanding of the resource in that area. We have a model that we have been developing since um, mid-2000 across that whole area. Um, so we know from that information, looking at the geology and our cores into that and bores into that system, that there is, and I'll explain the number, <laughs> around about 750, 605,000 megalitres of water underneath the ground. So 747 million megalitres. Yes. Yep. A lot of water. It is a very big area. Um, and it does have, it's an expansive regional aquifer. 
There's a difference between storage and recharge, though. Recharge would be an important part of this story, I'd imagine. And so the the number that can be sustainably taken is about 40% of the recharge. Why not go for a, for a smaller percentage here? There's a number of factors that we look at in setting um, the amount of water that can be taken out sustainably. So we have considered the potential development in the area. Um, we do know that there's a lot of existing pastoral activity. There's, in fact, 65 pastoral leases across that area. And we've done a lot of work within the department at looking at the soil and land suitability across the area. And that's identified more than 56,000 hectares of versatile land in the district. So what we have included in this water allocation plan is allocations towards the potential for agricultural development. Um, you know, there's a lot of water that could be used for that type of development too. There's a couple of mining activities that are in care and maintenance in that area. So we want to ensure that there would be water available for those activities. So the, we have looked at the demand for the water potential for development in um, you know, determining the uh, allocations that can be made for this plan. Right. Should demand dictate a water allocation, though? It's a combination of both of those things. So we balance, as we say, the extensive nature of the resource, the relatively high recharge rates, and a consideration of the demand. And what we're able to do is provide a nice balance that gave us a sustainable recharge-based allocation um, that still allowed for that development and use, but in a sustainable way. This plan allocates 10,000 megalitres a year to the petroleum industry. Is this the first time that we've seen a water allocation plan set aside water specifically for oil and gas companies? Yes, you're right there, Matt. Um, typically, when we do allocations across um, a number of different users of the water or beneficial uses as it's described in the Act. Um, we typically put them into just an other category and that can include a number of different development activities. But we did think it was important for this particular area with the potential for um, the gas um, industry that we do cap that industry in a rate that's sustainable and proportionable within the other development that will occur in the area. Going back to that total allocation number on what the government thinks is sustainable each year, so more than 250,000 megalitres, how do you think that's going to go down with environmental groups and local communities? Well, I think everyone always has different perspectives on these things. I think with um, considering the resource, we are confident from a science and understanding perspective about the um, the size and extensive nature of the resource and we've identified um, this level of um, sustainable extraction as the right balance between those competing um, uses, ensuring that the majority of the water is primar primarily retained in the resource for ecological and cultural factor, um, supporting cultural uses and that some of the water is also available for supporting development in that region, which we know is also important for, you know, our, our jobs and services in the area. The draft plan's out. People can go and look at it for themselves. How long until, I guess, the next step in this process? So the plan will be out for four weeks from today and it'll be closing on Sunday the 18th of December. 
and putting out a plan late on a Friday, it's never a good look, Amy Dysart. Are you proud of it? Oh, I'm absolutely proud of the science and understanding that yep. happens within the department. We really appreciate your time on the Country Hour today. Thanks so much. No problem. Thank you, Amy Dysart, who is the Executive Director of Water Resources with the Department of Environment and Water Security. If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour, and this is big news this afternoon. So the NT government has just dropped its draft water allocation plan for the Georgina and Wiseau basins. As I said, these basins cover a huge part of the Northern Territory. From just north of Daly Waters to south of Tennant Creek, we're talking about the Beedaloo Basin here, most of the Barkley and southern parts of the Sturt Plateau regions. And I am sure, as the story unfolds, the headlines will be around the amount of water that can be sustainably taken, according to the government. 262 gigalitres every single year which is, what, 40% of the annual recharge, around 205 gigalitres a year set aside for agriculture, mining and other industries. And what is quite unique for this plan is 10 gigalitres every single year set aside for petroleum activities, is what the line says in the draft report. You can find a copy for yourself up on the government's website, but that has just landed on a Friday afternoon. Paul Burke is the Chief Executive of the NT Farmers Association. The water allocation plan is out, Paul, for Georgina and Wiseo Basins. I know it's very early days, but do you have any uh, initial thoughts on what's here? Um, certainly, it's a significant volume of water. Um, it seems to be set very sustainably, um, around 40% of recharge, um, which is really pleasing. So potentially there could be more water available into the future. We know there's some aspirations in that part of the world um, for broadacre cropping, um, and it does open up significant opportunity for, for people in those regions, and, and we stand ready to have a conversation about you know, the, the water plan, but more broadly around cropping. In the document, it says around 56,000 hectares of versatile land sort of sit there in the Dunmara and Barkley North areas. Have you got a sense on if there's an appetite around that for irrigated ag? I don't know about the 56,000, um, but I certainly know that there is an appetite and, and there is some work being done already in that part of the world on some of those properties. So I think you'll see um, once this plan uh, goes through its process, um, it'll be out for draft comment. And, and I, I know that there'll be a lot of interest from some of the larger players in that area um, who have aspirations for significant cropping operations. So it's a really exciting time for the Territory. And, and it's good to see that the plan is actually now released, um, which will give a bit of surety for some of the gas sector that have been waiting for this as well. Um, and it's good to see that that's been separated out as part of the water plan, so we won't be competing for water um, within the one pool. Yes, because are you expecting water trading to be part of the future of this basin? I'm, I think water trading more generally across the Territory um, yes. will be a big part of the future. We see areas like Catherine that has a really high allocation. Um, the only way people are going to get into that market without um, utilising the, the overland flow capture or surf capture will be to utilise trading. So we'll, we'll see that happen as a natural progression in the industry. You have seen how much controversy has been generated by giving Singleton Station up to 40 gigalitres a year. How do you think this announcement will go down? More than 200 gigalitres a year of groundwater. 
So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and how those applications go in. Um, I think there were some positive things within the Singleton licence, the, the staged approach, um, and I think that's something that the government should consider with, with any large water licence. Um, the other, other component is ensuring that there is water in the system for, for future operations as well, so don't allocate it all on day one. Um, so a, a balanced approach, but I think you know, it, it, it will generate some interest from, from a lot of different organisations, no doubt. Moving on, it's National Ag Day. Happy National Ag Day to you. <laughs> Happy National Ag, uh, ag Day. Um, and we're talking about water again. Um, <laughs> well, it's a big part of ag, isn't it? It certainly is. There is no ag with, without water. And, and I think looking at Australia at the moment, um, there is plenty of water around. The, the east coast of Australia is having a dreadful time and, and my heart goes out to all of the farmers in, in, in that part of the world that you know, it's it's the second or third time that they've had these floods in yep. in, in better part of 18 months. So they must be thinking, uh, where's the water coming from? For Landline, we've actually interviewed an agronomist who this week was skiing on top of a wheat field. Underneath him in all the water was apparently an eight-tonne hectare wheat crop. Yeah, it's just, it's just devastating. Makes for a nice video, but that's devastating. Yeah, it is devastating. And, and it just goes to show the climatic... Um, conditions farmers right across Australia have got to cope with. And, you know, we are, as a country, very lucky that we have very diverse um, areas of production. So if one area is doing it really difficult or having a really difficult time, then another area um, has, you know, the upside where, where market prices can be higher. And, and, and we see that with people trading in and out of different products at certain times of the year when, when the price is right. Here in the Northern Territory, the value of agriculture is on the up. NT Farmers has released some numbers today. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, certainly. So we, we produce these statistics annually. Um, we do that by direct survey with growers. So we believe these are the most accurate picture of, of where the industry sits. Um, there's certainly some big uh, shining lights in that. Um, mangoes were, were fairly flat, um, but we expected that given um, we are sitting at a fairly high level. So incremental growth is always good. But melons has been an absolute uh, standout for us. A um, farm gate value now of $82 million a year. And on the rise. And on the rise and, and significant exports. So um, we've had melons going out all year um, to Singapore predominantly, but other, other parts of Asia. So that, that's a, a very new development where um, melons traditionally were going out of the eastern states. We've now got the facility here at Packfresh out at the airport. So they're sending significant quantities out. And I think we'll continue to see with what's happened around Griffith and, and what we talked about earlier with... Um, the, the issues around too much water in in that area, that people are looking to diversify geographically, and melons has been the really big winner in that, and we're seeing some significant development um, in the melon sector, and, and we'll, we we expect that to continue to grow um, and substantially grow over the next two to three years. Are you expecting it to become a bigger crop in value than mangoes? Um, I'm certainly expecting it to be on par with mangoes. Um, we will see mangoes grow as well. There are some significant new plantings going in. So I think mangoes will have a bit of a jump in the coming couple of years. But I think melons will continue to see to grow um, unless there's some biosecurity issue that, that impacts mm -hmm. that. Um, and we know melons are very susceptible to that. And that's one of the reasons melon growers like to be a long way from each other so they can protect their business. So the Farmgate value of Northern Territory Ag is now over $500 million a year for the first time ever. 
A big chunk of that, more than a fifth, is down to forestry, $115 million a year of farm gate value. I'm intrigued to know how you landed on that number. So um, it's, it's actually a, a, a model. So we've, we're only um, producing in one particular place, which is Tiwi Islands. Yep. So what we've done is with 10-year average. So we've said that this is going to be where the forestry industry is in over the next 10 years. So when African mahogany sandalwood starts to come off, we know what the approximate value is. So we've brought that back to say that, that over the next 10 years, forestry will be worth about that figure every year. Right. Um, and that's, so it's not worth $115 million right now? No, then. but that's okay. that's to protect an individual business's um, you know, the, the only ones producing. I understand. So, at, yes, right. Because at the moment, the only person selling timber is the Tiwis. That's right. And if you put the number down, you've... Completely exposed an ASX-listed companies. Correct. So, so we've done the average over ten years, and, and that's a, that's a pretty standard approach across a lot. So, of you sectors. feel 115 million is going to be the number when mahogany comes online as well. Correct. So, uh-huh. so while, whilst we might be a little bit under now, um, we'll probably be a little bit over in the future. But we'll be reporting that that type of figure unless there's something dramatically changes. Okay. Well, interesting stats. We'll share that online with our audience. Happy National Ag Day to you. Thanks for your time on the Country Hour. Happily, happy National Ag Day, Matt. And to all of the farmers out there, thanks very much for doing what you do um, and walking into a supermarket in the city. It's great to see so much territory produce. So thanks very much. Hi, my name's Savannah Phillip. I work at Humtadoo Barramundi. We're currently feeding thousands of baby Barramundi right now and you're listening to the Country Hour. 13 to 1, we've been talking water, we've been talking irrigation. Up next, I've got some property news for you. A large irrigation block that was used to grow Indian sandalwood for years has just been sold. Who has snapped up Stylo Station? You'll find out next. But first, let's have a song. And what sort of song does one play on National Ag Day? Lots of good options out there, but... This afternoon, we've gone local, and we're going to play Tommy Curtin's new tune, Tractor Man. I love it. I love every minute I'm a tractor man. He loves every minute he's a tractor man. Tractor Man Tom Curtin on Friday lunchtime. You are tuned into the Country Hour. It is National Ag Day. I've got some property news for you. Here at the Country Hour, we can tell you that a melon grower from New South Wales has bought Roper Plains near Mataranka, this property formerly known as Stylo Station. So it's been owned by Indian sandalwood producer Quintus since 2015, but the company put it up for sale a few months ago without harvesting a single tree out there. Quintus said the plantation had, quote, underperformed. It's now in the hands of melon grower Jamie Shembury, who's been growing melons on leased land in the Douglas Daily for the last couple of years. According to documents from the NT Land Titles Office, this property sold for $9.35 million. Andy Gray was one of the agents involved in this sale. I spoke to him earlier on to learn more about the deal. Thanks, Matt. Look, uh, Roper Plains, or, or, or formerly Stylo East, the sale of that property did complete earlier this week, you're right. Um, an excellent example of uh, development in that particular area. There were six production bores, and whilst I'm not an irrigation expert, uh, there are plenty of experts who did look tell, tell me there was state-of-the-art equipment. Um, it was a, a sandalwood plantation uh, of some 720 hectares that were developed 
um, to uh, to be irrigated each year of about 2,000 hectares in total. So being purchased, we, we received um, a very, very strong inquiry. Uh, that is Elders Real Estate Catherine through Alison Ross and, uh, and myself uh, during the course of marketing. And um, we conducted, uh, I think it was 10 inspections and we received um, nine offers to purchase the property. So it was um, keenly contested, which we expected it would be being such a very, very well improved property and with the Territory's uh, agricultural, horticultural sector on the rise. And are you able to give us more of a sense of the, the type of interest? I mean, this is a property near Matarenka with a 5.8 gigalitre water licence. What sort of interest did it attract? Yeah, good question. Um, the, the interest was uh, from three principal areas. There was, there was interest from the uh, livestock market with a view to a growing fodder and background in cattle. As you're probably aware, uh, some, if not all, of the yards, uh, export yards or Indonesian accredited export yards are offering a, uh, a feed service now, which makes a lot of sense um, with the weight gains they can put on at the, at the uh, current um, market rate. Uh, it's certainly a, a very uh, commercially acceptable deal to bring your cattle to town and feed them and have them uh, under the nose of the market. Uh, the other two sectors were probably not so much of um, uh, as widely known, but hort is growing. There's no two ways about that. Horticultural, yep, yep. horticultural market looked uh, very, very strongly from um, mangoes through to uh, watermelon and and uh, cotton production, um, uh, irrigated cotton. And so, what can you tell us about uh, the new owner's plans for Stylo East? So the new owner um, is uh, not foreign to the Northern Territory. He and his uh, family have been here for quite some time, uh, although this is their first acquisition. Um, so they've been leasing country. They've been looking for quite some time. Um, and uh, I, I would expect that they will uh, establish a large watermelon business down there in conjunction with possibly some cotton and maybe some other crops. 720 hectares gives them the opportunity to to diversify uh, under irrigation. So, um, yeah, uh, family operation and um, who's been quite successful here in the Northern Territory to date, but has now got his, um, his own uh, piece of land, uh, which is the difference from um, him having to lease previously. Yeah. And I hope he's got a good chainsaw. I assume the Indian sandalwood trees <laughs> will, will not be stained. Uh, I wouldn't imagine they will be. Um, uh, I can't confirm that, but there was plenty of plenty of um, ideas on how to pull them out. They're not big trees. Perhaps turn the turn the water on, or uh, subject to a decent wet season, they're not going to be very hard to pull out, pull down. Um, there was one view that we would let them dry out, die, and burn them, and then scrape them up. And there was various views, but none of them seemed to be too onerous in terms of cleaning the country up. Yes, there'll be a cost. Um, as there is with a property in Kununurra that's just recently sold in the Ord there. But it didn't didn't appear as though anyone was too perturbed by the fact that they had to clean it up. It's not big timber. So, yeah, I don't know that it'll be a chainsaw. I think it'll be a tractor and a bit of diesel and, and, a, and a chain once the ground's wet enough to pull them all out. And just finally, what's your take on on the money these types of properties are now attracting in the Northern Territory? You've been in the game a long time. 
a property like this getting close to $10 million, What's your take on it? Oh, it's indicative of... Um uh, these are my views, of course, but it's indicative of the uh, ag sector in general um, throughout Australia. Uh, there are new players coming in all the time. Um, we, we're, we're not moving away from the traditional market entrance, but we are seeing additional players and there's, there's money coming in from overseas that's generally US currency. So at our exchange rate, it's quite attractive. Agriculture and whatever you want to stick under the heading of agriculture is deemed a reasonably safe investment. It doesn't fluctuate like uh, some other commodities, whether it be tech stocks or, or others. Um, and there is a significant amount of money out there that wants to come into ag um, that previously hadn't considered ag. So the, the players have increased considerably. Um, commodity prices are, are strong. And I think just in simple terms, uh, the land and, and ag is a very, very safe uh, proposition for whether it be grazing or agriculture, horticulture, etc. Throw into that uh, uh, the carbon guys. So we have more players with limited uh, properties to access, um, supply and demand, and um, you know that all augurs well for those who are who have uh, landholders who are contemplating exiting. That is real estate agent Andy Gray talking about the sale of Roper Plains. It's been snapped up by melon grower Jamie Shembury here at the Country Hour. We've been in touch with Jamie. Uh, he's a busy man, <laughs> but we hope to have him on the program next week to talk about his melon plans for that country with a 5.8 gigalitre water licence near Matarenka. We've learned today that the Northern Territory produces about $82 million of farm gate value for melons every single year. There's already some big melon operations around Matarenka, and that is set to increase in the coming years. G'day, I'm Jermaine. G'day, I'm Caleb. And we're from Territory Bees. We're out here in Darwin's rural area attending to some hives, and you're listening to The Country Hour. Yeah, Caleb and Jermaine... Good mates from the Territory who have just started their own beekeeping business. It is the Australian Pollinator Week, and you'll get to meet these busy beekeepers on the Country Hour this afternoon. Hope you can stick around for that. The NT government has today put out its draft water allocation plan for the Georgina and Wiseau basins. I wonder if you've had a chance to look at it yet. A lot of water to be potentially extracted each year. If you missed our conversations in the first half, you'll be able to catch it via the podcast. Hey, just a bit of quick news from the RFDS, the Royal Flying Doctor Service. It's announced that Tracy Hayes, the former Chief Executive of the NT Cattlemen's Association, is its new Chair of the Federation Board. So well done to Tracy Hayes. In a statement from Tracy, she says, As a mother, businesswoman and long-term advocate for people in the bush, I'm very excited about this new role. I know too well the importance of emergency medical and primary healthcare services in regional, rural and remote Australia, with my own family having to rely on these services many times in the past. Congratulations, Tracy Hayes. Uh, we look forward to speaking to her on Monday's Country Hour.
Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Sally Cutter's there this afternoon. And Sally, there's been some nice rain in the last 24 hours. 35 millimetres in the gauge at Elizabeth Downs Cattle Station. 27 at Lakefield Station. What are some of the other good ones up to 9am? Oh, around... Adelaide River Towns, they've had 40 millimetres. The Fish River, 20. Roper River at Mataranka is 15 millimetres. The the Tipperary's had 13.2. Tortilla Flats, 13 as well. The Birrambina had 8. The Granite's 7.6, so they're still raining out in the Tanami. The Douglas River Research Farms, 6 millimetres as well. The the Victoria River Downs, 4.2. So it's a big, some good forwards There's been some around. What about the next couple of days? Any more over the weekend? Oh, certainly over the weekend. We, or today we're starting to see those showers and redevelop down through the Leicester District. The, there's a few moving through into the Simpson. And the, particularly the Leicester District ones may be a bit gusty with some reasonable rainfall, though it's mainly going to be wind down through that area, unfortunately, for it to hopefully nothing's going to get too close to Alice Springs or go around it. In the north, we're looking at some more of the heavy rainfall. So we could, we've got 71 millimetres out of one just at, outside of Darwin yesterday. So any falls across that top, the north, right across the top end, could get some decent falls and easing up to lesser falls if we come a bit further south. Cool change moving through Alice and Yulara, southern parts on, on the weekend, and that will push the trough up into the Barclay. So the, the Barclay looks like it could get some decent rainfall on Sunday as well. And so when you say decent there. rainfall in the Barclay on Sunday, how many millimetres potentially? Oh, the, if we're looking at Tennant Creek, so up to 20 millimetres, the... To, after all, I'm 15. If we out, go out to Crestle Downs, 15 millimetres. The Elliot, 15 to 20 millimetres on Sunday. The, so there's some, some reasonable falls through that area. And when you think that that's, to those figures, you've got 25% chance of getting those. So you could even get some slightly higher ones as well if you get one of those storms over the top of you. Right. And there's a chance of a possible storm in the Alice this afternoon. Is that right? Yes, unfortunately for those that are still cleaning up, there, there is a chance of storms through there. But the the, the, the more to better chance is probably back in the Leicester, but we certainly can't rule it out. And But that should be clearing out as we go through Saturday. So Sunday we should sort of cool southeasterly winds, maybe a little bit of strength to them, but there's only a bit of strength to the wind, northwesterly winds we've got to the south through the last the district at the moment. And what about the weekend ahead for fishos? What can you tell them? Oh, pretty good for fishos if you the maybe not so much if you want to actually go sailing, but generally we're looking at ten knots of wind. It, around in the Gulf of Carpentary could getting up to ten to fifteen so north easterly winds, but generally we we're looking at ten knots across the northern and western coastal waters. Okay then, Sally, have a lovely afternoon and happy National Ag Day. Thank you very much.
Tales from the Tinny. Yeah, on the way out, I received an unexpected message from the missus at the time saying she didn't want to continue on with our relationship. Got an 88 centimetre goldie with his crew yesterday. Called a meter and held me worries went out the window. Subscribe to the podcast. Yes, suddenly I saw him like, wow, big bar. I thought this is going to be a meter. By the time I woke up the next morning, completely forgot that I was even in a breakup. I'm on again! Come on! Come on! Or catch it from 5.30 Friday on ABC Radio Darwin. It is 11 past one and you are tuned into the Country Hour. If you're involved in the beef industry, you've perhaps seen in the last few weeks the NT Cattlemen's Association advertising next year's NTCA conference. It's always such a large event. And you might have noticed that next year it's on in Darwin again, not in Alice Springs. The chief executive of the NTCA, Will Evans, says crippling staff shortages in the Alice has meant the association has found it difficult to organise the event and hence the move to Darwin. Look, it's a big decision and one that we didn't take lightly. We start planning these events about 12 months out and in our initial conversations with service providers in Alice Springs, there was a level of concern that they wouldn't be able to accommodate an event of our size. Um, and so we, we erred on the side of caution and decided to stay with Darwin, um, which is just a bigger service centre and able to, to accommodate us more easily. You've mentioned that severe staff shortages in Alice were a major driver behind the conference being moved to Darwin. Why do you think this is a struggle to attract staff to Alice Springs? Look, I, I think there's a lot of challenges in Alice at the moment. The, the social situation is obviously presenting a lot of challenges for businesses and being able to recruit to the region. Um, look, I, I think it's really hard. We've got a workforce shortage across Australia and across regional Australia, so it's a, it's a very challenging situation. Would you say that crime is a major culprit behind these staffing shortages? Look, I, I think certainly from the, the business community's perspective, the crime in Alice Springs is diminishing confidence quite significantly and, and we're seeing that in Tennant Creek and we're seeing that in Catherine as well. It's These are challenging environments at the moment and it's a challenging environment to operate in as a business so it's certainly something that we're hearing across the industry at the moment. So I guess will the conference be held in Darwin for the foreseeable future or do you have plans to return to Alice Springs? No, look, we, we will certainly be returning to the Red Centre. Look, Alice Springs is the, the spiritual home of the cattle industry in the Northern Territory and it's a region that we're very proud of. So we will be bringing the conference back to Alice. We're just uh, not next year. As Will Evans from the NT Cattlemen's Association speaking to Shemaine Allison. So the conference next year to be held in Darwin, not Alice Springs. And that's a real blow for the town of Alice because over the years it's been such a big event for the Alice, brought so many people into town, been great for businesses. Nicole Walsh from the Chamber of Commerce says while it's disappointing the NTCA conference won't be held in Alice next year, she understands the decision. We've actually had the opportunity to chat with the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association today and totally understand that they need to be able to run the conference and there were certain things that couldn't be provided here in Alice Springs and support that of course we wish it was here but we totally understand the need for it to be moved. The conference has always been a really big revenue raiser for Alice Springs and the business community and the wider community. They have different events, they obviously have their conference, they book in, they go out for dinner. So it is really, really big for Central Australia. Uh, we hope going forward that you know, the things that were sort of the barriers for actually having that conference in Alice Springs um, will be able to look at and know some work being done on those things like accommodation at the moment and we'll see it again back again in the next couple of years.
I think that crime and antisocial behaviour is definitely a factor when people are planning events and conferences. Uh, we, we know for some that is a main part, for some that's just a factor in as well. But it's something that we are, certainly as a chamber again, really talking about. We've been invited to be on part of the Social Order Response Team Committee. And we're really committed to that too. Yeah, and we've been asking too for a short sort of short-term circuit break of Central Australia, but also working with that committee about some long-term, medium and long-term plans in that space as well. Nicole Walsh, the Chief Operating Officer at the Chamber of Commerce NT. So the Calamans Association on in Darwin next year, not Alice, which is a shame. I was at the last one in the Alice and they had the formal dinner out at a spot, I think it's called the Quarry, bits outside of town, and underneath a big moon, hundreds of people, utes packed full of ice and lovely cold drinks, live music, the boys from the Batuta Advocate were the MCs, and the food, the, the steak that was dished up in the middle of Australia was absolutely fantastic. It was a great night that I'm sure everyone there will, will never forget, and so let's hope things can get sorted and the NTCA conference can return to the Alice. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald, not to talk beef, but to talk tugboats. <laughs> now, Dan, over the last couple of days on this program, we've been talking about this, uh, you know, this sort of tussle between the unions and Australia's largest tugboat operator, Switzer. At one stage, it looked like today, Friday, there was going to be just a lockout across the nation, ports not able to operate. People were stressing out about it. Tell us, how did this story end? Uh, yeah, it was huge, Matt. Um, the Federal Minister for Workplace Relations, Tony Burke, he called this threat by Switzer to lock out its workers an act of economic vandalism. Uh, importers and exporters are getting very worried about it all, but it, it did come to a head last night mm -hmm. when the Fair Work Commission, it stepped in and it ordered Switzer, the tugboat operator, to scrap its threat of locking out tugboat workers. That was planned to happen at midday today. It said... So Fair Work said, you can't do that. Um, the tribunal, Fair Work Tribunal, said it was satisfied that the lockout of around 600 maritime workers would cause significant damage to the Australian economy. The commission heard if the action went ahead, shipping would be reduced by about 90% at the majority of ports where the company operates. So that's 17 ports around Australia. So the background to it all, maritime unions have been engaging in protected industrial action for some time over this pay dispute. Mm -hmm. um, Fair Work Commission, it's still got to deliberate a bit further as to whether or not it will suspend that action for a certain amount of time or terminate it completely. Um, a termination, it would force some mediation between the company and the union. So still a bit to go in this story. A little bit of argy-bargy, but the tugs are out there doing their job. They are still operating, yes. Spitzer owns eight tugboats in the Darwin Harbour, is what we've been told. Thank you very much for that update, Dan, and happy National Ag Day to you. How appropriate, hey, that on National Ag Day we're off to talk about bees in a moment. They're a very, very important part of ag. Name sure. me a more important livestock to ag than bees. <laughs> Have you been in a bee suit before? I believe I put the little hat on with the netting around, but yeah, I, haven't, yeah. I haven't got the full jumpsuit Not the full, on. the full experience. No, and that did result me getting stung on the arm in a... a during an interview with a, a beekeeper a really? couple of years ago. You've been stung. Yeah, rightio, rightio. That's on tape. All right. Um, let's have another song about tractors. Back-to-back <laughs> -back tractor songs on the country out today. It is National Ag Day, though. And then we'll jump into some bee suits. Stick around. She's always staring at me While I'm chugging along 
It is National Ag Day and you are tuned into the Country Hour. I trust you are well this Friday lunchtime. Now, as the Northern Territory's horticultural industry expands, so does the need for more bees to pollinate crops. It's an opportunity that's been seized on by Caleb Cardno and Jermaine Coolwell, who have started up the company Territory Bees. Now, while pollination is currently their main source of income, these former youth workers are hoping bees could create jobs and incomes for some of the NT's most remote communities. I went along to see their hives in action and learn more about their business. G'day, I'm Jermaine from Territory Bees. G'day, and I'm Caleb from Territory Bees. Tell us, what's the job here this morning, Caleb? Uh, well, Matt, we've got some pumping beehives here, and they're located on a farm here at Middlepoint, and we're here to help uh, the local farmer with his pollination needs. Now, the two of you are fairly new to the world of beekeeping. Jermaine, tell me how you got in, into this kind of gig. Yeah, I actually got into the gig. I was introduced to beekeeping through Caleb, actually. Um, he hit me up after yeah, going over his for a meal and noticing his backyard hives. Um, and then down the track, um, yeah, he approached me and was like, hey, here's this opportunity. What do you reckon? So, Caleb, you're the one with bees in the backyard. Tell us about that and, and your journey with bees. <laughs> I fell into it from a business deal gone wrong or, uh, in retrospect, a business deal gone right. Uh, I was trying to make up a couch for the wife uh, from some recycled timber from Cyclone Marcus. And uh, so I got a, a local chap to, to cut me up some wood. Anyway, he put the wood into his kiln, but then another customer came along with an urgent job and said, look, um, I'll pay you double, can you quickly do my job now? This guy pulled my wood out, left it in the elements, and it got all cracked and, and warped and whatnot. I went back then and I said, mate, I can't take this, like I can't actually make a couch out of this anymore. He said, well, I can't, I can't give you your money back. I said, well, what can you give me in, in return? And um, we went into a shed and I saw some beehive boxes on the wall. I was like, have you got bees, mate? He's like, yeah, i got bees. I'm like, well... How about a beehive? So is it done? So we shook on it. That day I took home a beehive, knowing absolutely nothing about how to care for bees. No, no bee suit, no protective gear or, or, or whatnot. Um, with <laughs> and hang on a minute. Uh, what did the wife say when you rocked up home with a beehive? She just said, give me some honey. Like, so <laughs> she, she wanted something, you know, she was like, give me some honey and, and some wax for candles or whatnot and, you know, everything will be fine. However, within six months, I had about six hives in the backyard and um, she noticed I was spending a little bit too much time on the bees. So she said, look, make this something serious or uh, or, or else, essentially. So uh, Jermaine had come over in that time and, um, yeah, our plan was hatched, essentially. And so this business, Territory Bees, tell us a bit about it, Jermaine, and the projects that you're working on. Yeah, so our primary focus is pollination, so providing pollination needs to for farmers on their crops. Uh, but we've also got a few exciting ventures in the works. Um, we've linked in with the Watt Air community and we'll start next year heading out there and just doing some education and hands-on practical work with some of the students at the high school there. Okay, so tell us more about that. Why Watt Air? Why bees? Well, it was actually them that hit us up. Um, Caleb went to a training earlier in this year and one of their teachers had attended that training as well and 
just through conversation. Um, yeah, they reached out to us. But to take you back a bit further, when we first established our business, uh, we wanted and still want to um, create employment opportunities and train and upskill community members um, from across the territory to be able to do beekeeping on country. Um, and so the school have a similar passion and so they're wanting to see their students uh, be skilled up and and i love the idea of what air honey yes that definitely cool. definitely it's going to be great um for sure and so yeah two paths collided and um caleb continued conversations with the school and we got to visit the community out there earlier this year and just absolutely incredible response uh, from a lot of the community members from the different organizations out there Within hours of us, Matt, uh, touching down in the plane, we had the Rangers and you know and, and Tamara Youth and other people going, this would be amazing for our community. And so um, essentially our passion is to uh, to grab uh, people out there, give them you know education opportunity and a path to employment um, with the aim that as our business steadily grows in the Territory, that we can then uh, have them plug in with their own hives into our pollination contracts. And so they'll have a guaranteed market. But then when we went out there, there was so much in flower. Just there was so much in flower. And, you know, we went for a drive into the bush and um, you've got areas there that are the size of small countries and it's in flower. And so we were like, wow, this... Which could lead to unique honey. Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, honey, honeycomb, uh, wax, you know, there's so many good things happening in that area if we can just uh, bring... Um, bring community members along with us. We build that trust and relationship over the long term and um, build that local capacity. I really see this going, uh, you know, a long way. And um, it also taps into, I guess, the why of what we're doing, which is to, you know, bring sustainable education opportunity and employment within communities in the Northern Territory. So um, if we can develop a model that can be, you know, copied and pasted around the Territory... um, I think it is within our grasp to do some immense good, I reckon. If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour and we're speaking to Jermaine and Caleb from Territory Bees. We're out here in the rural area of Darwin, attending to some hives at the moment. And I haven't been stung yet. I'm super happy about about that. So there's lots going on at the moment. You've got pollination services, you've got this community work and, and dream. You're expanding the business and to do that, you're using an interesting funding model, one I haven't heard of before. Can you tell us about that? It's called Invest in Your Farmer, or, or E for short. So essentially what it is, is what the profit will be over a 12-month projection of having our hives on pollination. We work out what the cost of that is, and then we also work out what the profit margin is. And so under the Invest in Your Farmer model, uh, the cost for us is about $400, and then our profit margin is about $200. And what happens with a person investing is that the profit margin is split in half and then they get half themselves. So they get just over 20% uh, return on their investment for investing in it. If all, if all goes well. Are you aware of, say, mum and dads in Sydney that have bought a hive, essentially? 100%. Yeah. I'm getting so many new friends on, on, on Facebook and, and people reaching out through Messenger and LinkedIn and whatnot going, I just brought a hive. And it's really cool to see the excitement. Um, we, and we're really excited about this. So the investment is going straight towards the materials that, uh, that it is 
going straight towards our expansion. Finally, what do you love about bees? There's a calming nature to them. Um, yeah, you need to be, I guess, still and present when you're working with the hive. Otherwise, you get stung. That's not pleasant. But just something about, I guess, their hum, opening up the hive and taking it slow just allows you to ground yourself, really. Caleb? I mirror what Jermaine has said, but I would say it's probably the best tool I'm aware of for mental health. Uh, When you open up a hive, you see, you recognise how the hive is moving. You can tell within seconds if it's queenless or not. You can tell the health of the hive. You can't think of anything else except for the bees. The smell comes out, you have honey dripping on your fingers. Um, It's an amazing experience, and it's like reading a good book if you're into reading or um, sitting down and you know just really relaxing in the bush it's you you come away really relaxed really happy and you also tune into a bit of nature and you also recognize the importance of bees and what they do for pollinating i'd say over 50 percent of the the food that we eat on our plate so if the more people that sort of get into beekeeping i say the more awareness that we've got the more respect we have for bees and um the more people that'll be happier in life i dare say <laughs> All the best, and I'll let you get back to work. Thanks for your time on the Country Hour. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That is Caleb and Jermaine from Territory Bees. Hey, just finally here at the Country Hour, our thoughts are with the friends and family of Norm Fisher, who died in a helicopter crash earlier this week in Arnhem Land. In a statement from NT Buffalo Industry Council President Adrian Phillips, he says Norman's death sent shockwaves across the many industries and communities in which he and the Fisher family are involved. He said Norm was a once-in-a-lifetime operator. He is truly irreplaceable in terms of his role in the Fisher family and his presence across the industry. It's impossible to measure the sense of loss that we're all feeling this week, he said. Norm built an incredible legacy, which we know will live on proudly, especially in his children. The Fisher family, of course, involved with the pastoral stations of Swim Creek, Mary River East and Wambungee. Yes, to his friends and family, we are thinking of you. That's it for a week of Country Hour. Keep it rural. Rural.